Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on April 25th, 2021, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hello, Adam. Hi, Dave. How's it going? Uh, I'm pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing doing okay. We were we were uh, chatting before we uh, before we recorded about the uh, the spring allergies that uh, that hit every year this season, and I have been I have been stricken with uh, with uh, with spring allergies. So you have to remind so, you have to remind people these are allergies. It's not COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah. So the the three people I see on the daily on a daily basis, including my two children, um, I have to remind them that I I you know this is just spring allergies. <laughs> but uh, but as, uh, aside from that, uh, things are doing things are doing okay. I live a pretty charmed life, uh, everything considered. So um, things are things are pretty good. How about yourself? I, I hear you're up to uh, you've been up to some uh, very interesting uh, interesting things over the past couple months. Yeah, over the last few months, I, I don't know how many of our listeners will know, but uh, me and a group of twenty six other friends decided to write a book, um, an anthology of essays about midlife it's called uh, midlife and you can find it at midlifebook.ca it's man like it i i'm so amazed by the response like we've we've sold over 500 copies of the book wow uh, um apparently so one of one of the folks who's working on this with us is a woman named iva chung who's a book editor in vancouver and she said a best-selling book in canada sells around a thousand copies so we're halfway there. <laughs> You're halfway there. Well, that well, that's awesome. Um, now I, I have a copy of the book uh, because um, I was really excited when I heard that you um, heard that you or you you sent an email saying telling your friends that uh, that you'd been involved in it. So I went on midlife. I think at midlife dot midlifebook.ca is it or is it midlife.ca? Yeah, midlifebook.ca. Midlifebook.ca. And I ordered uh, a copy and I went and picked a copy up at the Dapper Beaver, which is a <laughs> Uh, which is a, a cafe in uh, Park Allen here in Edmonton. Great little place. You should check it out. Um, and I sat through and I read like this entire book in like two night, two evenings. I just sat down and just like plowed through. And it's like a series of like short stories and vignettes from, um, from friends of yours who were all involved in the gateway newspaper at the U of A, right? Is that, yeah, that correct? That's right. So 20 years ago, we all, I, I don't want to say we all worked together. Some of us, did but the gateway was like one of those volunteer organizations it was a bit of a a revolving door in a way of folks who came in and out and over the years so this is a cohort of people who were at the gateway around the same time um sarah chan and jennifer pavilano the books to editors and and the the book is their brainchild they sort of brought us all together at the beginning of january and said you know, it's the middle of a pandemic. We're doing our jobs and very little else. What if we wrote a book? So, so this is the result: bunch of essays and contributions about what it's like uh, to be entering into our forties. Because we're old now. <laughs> You're old now, apparently. Yeah, yeah. No, that's wonderful. Um, uh, I, I think it's a great book. Um, there were, I mean, stories made me, uh, you know, made me laugh, made me cry. Uh, you know, a lot of really good, insightful, you know, really, really good, insightful from the heart stories. Um, so I'd encourage everybody to go on and, uh, yeah, go to midlifebook.ca and check it out and uh, yeah. order your copy because we're ha they're halfway to becoming a bestseller in Canada. 
That's right. And they are limited editions. So like the hard copy that you have, Dave, is is a very nice green cloth and gold foil cover. The illustration on the cover was uh, designed by world famous illustrator Raymond Biesinger. So it's, it's kind of a collector's item in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And so it's so it's a limited run, you said. That's right. Yeah, um, the are, total... are they are they planning on printing a thousand or? Uh... I think it's around a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. We had a okay. meeting yesterday that I couldn't make where we talked about upping the number we were printing. And I think it's up to a thousand now. Okay. Well, uh, listeners, let's make this a bestseller and uh, <laughs> go to midlifebook.ca and uh, and and uh, buy your copy. It's awesome. You won't regret it. It's a lot. The book is a lot of fun. Yeah, and this group of people is we're working on another project soon together because we had so much fun. So hopefully oh, I'll be awesome. able to talk Look- about that a little later. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to looking forward to hearing that. Uh hearing about it. That's great. Yeah. Cool. So Dave, this episode is a is a mailbag episode, but uh I wonder like <laughs> I feel like every time we talk, so much has happened <laughs> between the last episode and and the current one. Yeah. Like what's been going on in, in Alberta politics? I mean, certainly there's stuff related to COVID. What, what's yep. on your mind that's catching your attention right now? Well, I mean, the big thing that came out this week, I mean, COVID is obviously the, is the big thing. And it's, you know, we are in the, we are in a period of exponential growth for the third wave. Um, I think we're, we're almost back to where we were in December in terms of active cases, which is incredibly frustrating considering we basically all gave up our family Christmas traditions and Christmas gatherings in order to try to get this thing under control. And the restrictions in December and January, we saw cases plummet. And then all of a sudden, you know, the government was so eager to reopen um, at the same time as, you know, we and, and, at the end, and as a result, um, lifting restrictions, we now have cases rising basically almost to where they were in December. So it's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, I mean, the writing seems to be on the wall in terms of how this stuff works in terms of when you, you know, when you loosen restrictions, cases, numbers rise, uh, you know, there are new variants that are more contagious. Um, you know, it's, it's real positive that vaccinations are happening at a, at seem to be at a steady pace, but like, that's not enough. Um, mm. so it's frustrating that we're, we seem to be back into the situation we are and the government, um, the government who is responsible for, uh, you know, in implementing these these uh, these public health measures, uh, the provincial government doesn't seem to be willing to act on it, and at least to act in any any fast any any fast sort of way to get this under control, which is which is really frustrating. So that's kind of the but but part of the one of the frustrating things about that is that there doesn't seem to be like a a real um, uh, a real concern in Alberta in terms mm-hmm. of politicians, in terms of even the mainstream media. Um, like I'm looking at opinion columnists. There doesn't seem to be like, it, it's like this thing that's just happening. It's like where we have COVID fatigue. So we're not, you know, the third wave's bad, but we're not really going to be like talking about how the government should do something about it. It's just like, oh, it's happening. But oh, hey, look how bad Ontario is doing. But yeah, yet in Alberta per capita, we're like going through the roof. Yeah. And I, I saw, I saw, <clears throat> I don't know if this is true. I didn't get to fact check this, but that uh, per capita, Alberta was worse than India in terms of infection rates. So I don't oh, know wow. if that's no, true, I, but someone tweeted that earlier. Okay, well, listeners, you can fact check us on that, but that's yeah. that's shocking if shocking if true. And and um, you know, a country like Germany, who who's you know, a lot of European countries have been struggling with this. I think it was today. I saw a headline that said Angela Merkel is uh, announcing a new lockdown for Germany of a minimum of four weeks. You know, so wow. so other jurisdictions seem 
more willing than Alberta to deal with this other than vaccinating people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, that's kind of the ongoing thing that's, that's on the, on everybody's mind, but, but as I said, there doesn't seem to be a real sense of a real sense of public urgency in Alberta as we've kind of, we kind of felt in December or even, even last spring. Um, the other, well, the other big thing that happened this week in terms of Alberta politics was the, what my favorite, uh, time of year, which happens four times a year, usually around the 24 or the 21st of the, of the, of the third, of the fourth month of the uh, fourth month of, uh, or the month after the quarter closes, um, Elections Alberta releases the uh, quarterly financial uh, fundraising reports from Alberta's political parties. So yeah. this was, uh, yeah. So, I mean, for political nerds, it's always interesting. But uh, this week, uh, when, when it was when the numbers were released on April 21st, it was, the numbers were quite interesting. Uh, we saw the NDP raise uh, double what the United Conservative Party raised in the first three months of, of 2021. So we have the NDP raising about 1.1 million. Uh, and or just over 1.1 million, and the UCP raising uh, just about half of that as, at 591,000, um, which is like nothing for for a uh, which is shocking for a government governing political party to be you know to be out fundraised like that by their opposition, um, uh, especially especially the you know the NDP in in Alberta. So it's it's uh, I mean it it demonstrates that the NDP have struck the I mean they've really struck the right tone in terms of fundraising and in terms of motivating their base and motivating their donor base and and growing their donor base because we saw I think the NDP their um uh I think they, they sent out a press release saying they had like 13,000 donors or something like that and like the wow. and about 70% of them made donations in in denominations lower than $250 which is so smaller donations so you have a large base contributing smaller donations whereas the UCP um you know, even though they even 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 raising half as much as the NDP, they still relied more heavily on donations above two hundred and fifty dollars. But what we saw is compared to what I what I've noticed from previous years, and especially last year, where the numbers were kind of reversed between the UCP and the NDP in the first quarter of twenty twenty, uh, is the UCP tends to rely on big donors maxing out their donations in the first quarter. Is what I've kind of the trend I've seen. Uh, you know, so you get the the big donors who donate the forty two hundred. Um, uh, dollar manual maximum in the first quarter. So it gives the party a big bump. We just didn't see that this time around. So, you know, donations across the board in the UCP were down, but they weren't getting as many large donations from their big donors in the first quarter. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's, you know, that's, that's a reflection. I mean, it's a reflection of, you know, the, the, UC, the, the UCP president released a statement saying that, you know, they weren't, they weren't at trying donations from their donors because it's tough economic times and blah, blah, blah. And I don't actually buy that um, because political parties are always fundraising and they always want money. Um, I, I mean, I said, I think this, this shows that there's a, you know, there's signals, there's an unhappiness with, uh, with the UCP and specifically probably with Jason Kenney in terms of his leadership. And, you know, well, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there. I mean, I think there's that signals an unhappiness with uh, with with J with Kenny and and uh, among the the UCP donor base, and and obviously with with the NDP, um, they're leading in the polls, um, they're leading in fundraising. Uh, you know, things are things. You know, are they're not they're not it's, no nothing sealed for them yet. Obviously, two years till the next election, and and uh, you know they seem to have hit a point in in the polls. Um, you know, where it's it'll be interesting to see whether they can go higher than they where than where they are, uh, but. Uh, but things seem to be going pretty well for them right now. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me is that, you know, if, the, if this was the single data point indicating um, people disaffected with the United Conservative Party, that would be one thing. But 
we've had a steady year of approval polls of criticism of Jason Kenney in the media. And now we've got this sort of, you know, ind indication, a poll of money that, that says that people mm -hmm. are pretty dissatisfied yeah. with the UCP. Um, we've got a lot of questions from listeners about that. So I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the fun or, or usurp anyone else's questions. So maybe we should just get to the, the mailbag unless there's anything else you wanted to chat about. No, for sure. Let's just let's just uh, dive into the mailbag, and we can uh, I can expand on uh, on what I was talking about about uh, fundraising when it comes up. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, we we got quite a few questions here. We're going to start one off with uh, something that came from a competitor podcast, actually, um, lesser known Canadian politics podcast, The Strategist. So, Dave, I don't know if you remember, we had Zane Velji from The Strategist on our show. A while. Oh, Would yeah. You remember Zane? Zane's, yeah, Zane's fantastic. Um, I didn't realize he had a podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, that, the, that's that's good for him. Great, good job, Zane. That's good. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll we'll tune in. Couple of lesser awesome. known guys that he hosts the show with. I can't remember their names right now. It's not important. But uh, uh, okay, they yeah. asked us yeah. this question. You know, they would like to know what we think of the Center Street Dairy Queen. This is in Calgary, and whether this has the potential to be a 2023 ballot box issue. So, so do you know what they're talking about here? Uh, I think this has to do with the dairy. Was it? Is it the the Dairy Queen line, the new train line in Calgary? Oh, I think I think you're the, mixing up stories. So there's a the, green a okay. green line, right? Oh, and then, okay, yeah. And now Dairy Queen is a franchise of uh, of fast food restaurants. Dave, we've got a oh, few of them in Edmonton. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I thought this was like a, a cattle question. Like, yeah, no, 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 this farmers, cattle ranchers. This okay. is a. This I thought that was strange. Because I didn't think there was a cattle ranch in the middle of Calgary. I mean, they like to pretend they're cowboys, but there aren't any real cowboys right there, right? Yeah, I'm I'm actually not sure if this is connected to like maybe the Stampede or something. Who knows? Like, I mean, I never. Oh, okay, Calgary. okay, yeah, yeah, okay. But apparently, there's a Dairy Queen that uh, that Zane set on fire in 2019. He burned it to the ground. Um, oh, because he hates dilly oh, we bars. We all have to have hobbies. Yeah, yeah, and so. They want to know if um, if this is going to affect De uh, Zane's run in 2023. I think I think that's what the question's asking. Well, I mean, I guess uh, you know, I mean, it's very clear that I mean, he's you know, he he may have trouble with the Dairy Queen vote, but mm. uh, Zane might have trouble you know getting those Dairy Queen voters. But I mean, by this, I mean this pretty clear definitive action. I think the Burger King uh, voting base is going to be pretty happy with it. So that's uh, it's a real whopper. Yeah, yeah, you definitely have to watch out for those um, for those other uh, contenders coming out in the election. I, I wonder, I wonder what kind of challenge uh, Dairy Queen Zane Velji might see from uh, from McDonald's or even from uh, Wendy. Yeah, well, you know, it depends what time of year what time of year it is because I mean, you know, if it's around St. Patrick's Day, I mean, Uncle O'Grimacy is going to come out and you know give the uh, give the Blizzard a run for its money. And uh, what's the uh, What's the what is the uh, the Burger King version of the what's their uh, their milkshake thing? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> no idea. <laughs> they, they have some sort of like ice the cream squishy. thing that you can yeah. buy. The squishy, yeah, I yeah. The only, um, the I only mean, way this, the only way that this is Zane a sequel Belgi, to the podcast wars. It's the, the only uh, way that Zane Belgi stores, can wars. win this is if he hamburgles some votes. I think, but I, but I think what he should be really worried about is the fact that he burned down a Dairy Queen. Yeah. And whether or not Calgary police will find him for that. So 
you should you should seek some uh, some legal help with that Zane. yeah um i i personally don't know any lawyers um but uh but maybe you uh maybe you can google some lawyers and uh and hopefully you can you can get the kind of type of support and you should uh, zane you should probably stop burning down dairy queens yeah and guys like a common practice exactly and good luck with your new podcast the strategist i'm i'm excited mm-hmm. to give that one a listen yeah, I hope it really takes off. Um, yeah. you know, consistency is important. Um, and uh, yeah, good luck. We'll um, we'll try to tune in. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well that that's great. Excellent. That's great. First question. Thanks, down. thanks, thanks, to the strategists. Well done, the strategists. Uh, this next one comes from uh, listener Mountain Ted. Wouldn't be a wouldn't be a Dave Bird a mailbag episode without Mountain Ted. Mountain Ted wants to know what are your thoughts on Bill Seventy, especially on it being retroactive. Who was the most likely group lobbying for that? So, Dave, what is Bill 70? So, Bill 70 was a bill that was introduced to the legislature last week by, uh, you know, it's a government bill, but it was introduced by a government backbencher, a guy by the name of uh, Richard Godfrey, who's the UCP MLA for Calgary Fish Creek. And so it's a little unusual because usually when government bills get introduced, they're introduced by ministers. Um, but every now and then, I think I, I've, I've seen this before. I can't name the other bill off the top of my head, but I've seen this seen this before, where a bill will be introduced and it's it's a government bill, but a backbencher takes or a backbencher introduces it. Um, Richard Godfrey, who's also in charge of the, I think he's leading the the government's continuing care review, which is probably why he was allowed to or he was asked to introduce this introduce this government bill. Um, this, so this bill basically, from what I understand, it protects um, long term care home operators from facing lawsuits over COVID-19. So as we know, um, and especially early in the pandemic, um, maybe not early in the pandemic, for for a big chunk of the first part of the pandemic, there was a lot of attention, a lot of media attention, and a lot of public attention on outbreaks, COVID-19 outbreaks in long-term care centers in in, in, uh, assisted living homes where seniors were living because uh, early in the pandemic, a lot of the, the, the outbreaks were happening among older Oh, you know, older Albertans. Um, a lot of deaths happened in um, in a number of long-term care centers, um, which was, you know, very very sad. And it's actually kind of unfortunate that we've, in, in terms of public attention, we've almost seemed to move or have moved on from that issue rather than, you know, focus. You know, rather than asking the question of, well, why the heck did this happen? In in uh, in in why why were our, you know, our our seniors, our grandparents, and our parents so vulnerable, put in a position where they were so so vulnerable in these uh, in in a lot of cases in these privately owned long term care centers? Because in Alberta, we have a mix of publicly owned, privately owned, nonprofit long term care, continuing care. It's a it's a real patchwork. Um, so what this bill does is it protects the those companies. Um, from lawsuits that would happen from families who would uh, who would sue them over whether it be COVID deaths or alleged negligence, and I think what it does, from what I understand, is it raises the bar quite high in terms of what uh, what these long term care home operators can actually be sued for. Um, you know, I, in terms of who who is responsible for. Uh, lobbying for that. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if groups like the Alberta Continuing Care Association, which is the the kind of the overarching lobby group for a lot of these private and nonprofit long term care centers, the companies uh, and and societies. I wouldn't be surprised if they were if they were asking for this. Um, and the long term care operators operators themselves, in terms of a lot of these big 
big mega private companies. Um, Rivera is one, th- one one that comes to mind right away. I wouldn't be surprised if they were like if they were lobbying for this kind of protection. I'm I'm kind of shocked that the government would move move this kind of le- move move this legislation through, um, because I think there are a lot of Albertans that expect there to be consequences for the the results for what happened during the pandemic. And once this is over, um, I think that, you know, once, once the pandemic is over and we were, you know, we, we start to reflect on what happened. I think there there will be a lot of Albertans asking and demanding that there be consequences from these, these larger companies and, and, uh, and uh, inquiries in turn in to look into what actually happened and why this happened. So that, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's the answer to that, uh, that question. Yeah. Thank you for Thanks so much for the question, Mountain Ted. It's a good one. Uh, it's an interesting issue that we'll, I'm sure, be following and hearing more about as it moves through. Yeah, I'd love. Uh, yeah, in the future, I'd love to have a um, more time to kind of expand on that and uh, maybe have a guest on who can who could talk a little bit more thoroughly about that because that is, a, I think, is a, is a really important issue. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, this one's related uh, to Mountain Ted's question and away from Matt Schneider. It's a it's about backbench uh, MLAs. So so Matt asks, what do we make of backbench UCP MLAs? who never replied to their constituents, read my emails. Is this a larger trend in politics? How can we engage with our elected representatives in the time of COVID if they never respond? Dave, are you hearing this a lot or? I, I, I am hearing this and and I, I don't know whether, I mean, I wouldn't say this is necessarily totally unique to the UCP um, because I think that you always have, regardless of parties, you're always going to have politicians who don't, you know, at various levels who don't respond or, or don't want to engage with constituents on, on certain issues. Um, but I have been, you know, hearing more, maybe, maybe it's because we're just hearing more about it on social media, but there does seem to be a, uh, you know, a lot of people voicing concerns about how they're not either not hearing back from their MLAs or they're not, um, they're not hearing kind of satisfactory answers in terms of actually being able to engage with, with their MLAs. So they're getting kind of the, um, the form letter response or the, the talking points response back rather than actual meaningful engagement with, with the, with the MLAs in terms of how you can engage with your elected representatives, you know, in the time of COVID, I mean, obviously going in and meeting with them, you know, in person is, is, uh, you know, there's less, less of a chance, if not no chance in some cases that you could do that, I guess, depending on which MLA it is, how comfortable they'd be to meet in, to meet in person. Um, but, uh, I mean, consistent, you know, uh, uh, being persistent, I think is, is, uh, is important. And, um, you know, call, you know, whether you want to set up a zoom meeting with your MLA or a, you know, you know, write writing them letters, uh, if you want to set up some kind of group meeting or something, I mean, be, be consistent. Um, in what I would, what I would suggest, what I would recommend is, and keep in mind that, um, you know, the, the constituency staff who work in the MLA's offices are, you know, they're not elected people. They, they, yes, they work for the work for the MLA, but in a lot of cases, in some cases they're not like they're, they don't necessarily come from a partisan background. Um, so, you know, be nice to constituency, constituency managers and constituency assistants, um, but hold your, hold, you know, hold your MLAs to account. And in some cases, if they don't, just don't want to engage with you. Um, I mean, there's only a, you know, a limited amount of things you can actually do. Um, but I mean, I saw that over the weekend, there were some parents who, uh, went and papered over, had a little, had a little protest event in front of Casey Madu's, um, constituency office in Edmonton Southwest. And they papered over and put, signs on his uh, on his uh, on the windows of his constituency office so we're seeing uh you know seeing constituents seeing albertans do creative things like that when they're uh when they you know can't meet can't necessarily their mlas won't meet or can't meet with them mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i mean but, I, but I, you know sorry go on 
I was just going to say your your recourse here is uh, is to if you don't like the way they're doing their jobs or not doing their jobs, vote them out next time. Yeah, the election's coming in twenty twenty three. Yeah, could, so, and I mean as Albertans have as Albertans have shown since you know twenty fifteen and even twenty twelve in 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 some areas of the province, you know they're not afraid to toss uh, you know or to change MLAs if they're unhappy with uh, with the direction things are going. So you know keep that in mind too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for the question, uh, Matt. We appreciate it. This next one is from Jennifer Walters, and she asks, why does no branch of the provincial government address facilities not complying with CMOH Order 29-2020? Now, this order uh, basically sets the terms. It's created by the chief medical officer, and it dictates how healthcare facilities have to develop and implement policies to keep people safe from COVID-19. And and so I, I guess what Jennifer's asking is, how come how come no one's addressing facilities that don't follow uh, this order? Yeah, th thanks for the question, Jennifer. I, I thought I mean this is interesting because I I don't know whether there is a, whether whether there isn't a, a branch of the government that isn't um, isn't mo kind of mo monitoring this this health order. I would assume that there are uh, you know public health officers uh, who are going and monitoring this type this type of these these types of orders just as they would some of the other orders for example around um around restaurants and around bars and 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 other place other gathering places that uh, that that might not be following the orders or checking that they are, they are following the orders so i i, I you know i'm, I'm going to look into this further um and if anybody has any insight into this um uh you know please feel free to you know shoot us a tweet or uh or uh, or an email and we'll 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 uh maybe we can talk about this on the next episode maybe um but yeah in interesting question thank you jennifer mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to understand how uh defiance of an order like this interacts with the bill that was introduced bill 70 around being able to sue long-term care facilities because because this order does address long-term care facilities as well i believe yeah yeah and i would assume i mean the I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know in terms of. I mean, there may there may be some facilities that aren't complying, but uh, but I mean, I know that like the facilities that um, that I'm aware of, where I have family members at, they seem to be seem to be complying pretty pretty strictly to the order. That's good. Or at least doing doing you know exercising an abundance of caution to protect the uh, protect the residents that live there. Ah, uh, those seem like heady days a year ago when we were exercising abundances of caution, right? Yeah, people just don't say that anymore, right? It's uh, no, no, it's a very 2020 ism. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Our next question comes from Annie Krasker. And Annie asks, what do you think will be Jason Kenney's next political move? That's a good question. There's a lot to, lot to choose from here, Dave. What do you think? There, There's a lot to choose from. I mean, he's going to have to... Uh, you know, I mean, if, 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 if I'm thinking, what you know, what is Jason Kenney going to do tomorrow on Monday, um, uh, April 26th? I mean, I think that he has to figure out whether his government is going to uh, at, is going to implement more stricter or at least more more meaningful restrictions, uh, public health restrictions, to deal with the third wave of the of the COVID uh, of the COVID uh, outbreak or the COVID pandemic. Um, so, I mean, I think that's that's probably going to be the next thing he needs to, needs to figure out to do. But but I mean, as we've seen over the past thirteen months, is I mean he he's insistent on or can't get beyond this balancing try, trying to create a balance between public health health restrictions that work or at least a minimum of minimum of public health restrictions that work and then balancing the politics of this 
COVID caucus, the 15 MLAs who signed, and I think we're up to 18 now in terms of MLAs who voiced, uh, you know, voiced op- opposition in some case to the public health restrictions, um, you know, balancing the, 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 the politics of that and having these 18 MLAs and probably more, even some who haven't spoken out from the, in, inside his own caucus and inside his own party, um, which, which, I mean, it seems to be a, a formula of a formula that's destined to not actually, you know, <laughs> not actually, um, uh, uh how create results in terms of dealing with the pandemic because because you're thinking about politics in 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 uh, you know in the midst of it or in, in the middle of it which is which is frustrating so i mean i think that's i don't know if that answers your question um but i, I in terms of monday tomorrow i think that's probably what uh, what what needs to be done first and i'd be shocked if the if the provincial government doesn't actually announce some more measures either tomorrow or on tuesday This episode of the Dave Berta podcast is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. You know, in Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Park Power has low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. Reach out for a no-obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca. If you decide to switch, it's easy. It's really just a change to your billing, and you can feel good knowing you are helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca. This episode of the Dave Berta podcast is also brought to you by Writing Is Your Nature, a live Online masterclass for nature, environment, and outdoor writers created by Pandemic University and the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative. Running May 11th to 25th, Writing is Your Nature was designed to sharpen your nonfiction writing through the lens of ecology and conservation. It's free and open to the public to learn from guest professors like Chris Turner, a best selling author and leading voice on the climate crisis, and Sarah Gilman, an MIT night science journalism fellow who will break down how to pitch and get paid to write science and nature stories. You can register for the masterclass at pandemicuniversity.com. And in case you're wondering what the heck is Pandemic University, it's an Alberta-made virtual writing school on a mission to dull the impact of COVID-19 for professional and emerging writers alike. Since April 2020, over 1,500 students have attended from 25 countries. Writing is Your Nature is the first free course by Pandemic University. Join in starting May 11th, and if you can't attend live, no worries. Registered students can watch each Masterclass video replay at a later time. Head to PandemicUniversity.com to register. This one's from... uh, Easer side Steve one. <laughs> I think it's East Side Steve. I think I typed that wrong. Oh, okay, sorry, East Side Steve. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Steve wants to know what is the most any premier in Canada has sunk in the polls and still recovered to win. This is like a Dave Cornway question, if I ever heard one. Yeah, this is a really this is really interesting. Um, I mean, I think that like I think back in terms of kind of the more. Um, more modern or, or recent examples across Canada. And I think of the, I think it would have been the 2013 uh, election, provincial election in British Columbia, where Christy Clark's 
Liberal Party was down in the poll. Premier Christy Clark's Liberal Party was down in the polls for like a year, you know, 20 points behind the NDP. And then they came back to, uh, to win the election um, and, uh, and, and form government again. I'm thinking about the, uh, I think it's, I think it was 1999. Uh, if I'm 1995, no, I think it was 1995. The, uh, no 1999 or 1995. There was one, there was one election in Ontario. I'm gonna have to go back and look on Wikipedia. There was one election in Ontario where the, where the, the liberals were leading and then the PCs won. It might've been my, if it was Mike Harris's first election, then, uh, then that doesn't really count in terms of the, the question that, that East side, uh, Steve is asking, cause he wasn't the premier at the time, but the one in Alberta that I think of is the 19 would have been the 1940 election. I think it was the 1940 election here in Alberta where the Socreds were incredibly unpopular. This is the first re-election. Um, William Eberhardt's only, I think it was his only re-election actually, because he only served two our term in a bit as, as premier. And the Socreds, it was very controversial. They'd had a very, uh, a very tumultuous first term in government. There'd been a big backbench revolt. A bunch of MLAs had left. Um, there were, you know, there were the Supreme Court had struck down um, legislation. They'd locked the lieutenant governor out of his out of his uh, his house uh, at government house. Um, you know, it was it was a pretty tumultuous time in Alberta politics. And from 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 what I remember, like the Socrats weren't doing, you know, they weren't doing fantastic. But like there was a lot of opposition against them. Um, but the opposition was so disorganized and they just, they, they organized this like United independence movement where they had all these independent MLAs run against Socreds and they were able to win a bunch of seats, but they weren't able to do anything close to, uh, to actually defeat the, so the, the Socreds. So they won another majority. So that's kind of the first one that pops into my mind in terms of the premier who had, who sunk in the polls and, and, uh, still recovered to win. Cause remember it would have been in about 36, 1936 or 1937 that William Eberhardt they uh, the Socreds introduced a MLA recall legislation, which right. is what is is being introduced in Alberta right now uh, again. Um, but then there was a what appeared to be a successful voter uh, or MLA recall petition drive in William Eberhardt's riding of Okotoks High River, where they where the the threshold was really high. I think it was like sixty six percent. You needed to get sixty six percent of voters to sign this petition to trigger a um, trigger a by election. Um, a recall by election. And uh, yeah, I think they like they the fear was that they'd actually that his opponents had actually collected that much that many votes because he was so unpopular in his own riding. And then um, the the next ses session of the legislature before the recall election could be triggered, they, um, they uh, rescinded that legislation. So all of a sudden, they just removed the recall legislation, dissolved the recall legislation from the law. Um, hmm. But then two, two or three years later, Abrahart went and the Socreds won one election again or one re-election. So that'd be kind of the one that sticks out in my mind. And I'm sure there, I'm sure there are others I have to think about a little, think about it a little more, but that was a pretty wild election. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, I knew you'd be able to answer that, Dave. That was, that was like a, that's like a softball for you for me side, Steve, but, uh, I'm just my baseball crack. There you go. You know? Dave knows baseball. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the question. I hit, I hit it with, I hit it with the stick. That's right. You can sports ball like touchdown. No one else. <laughs> Our next question. Our next question comes from Peter Fortna. Peter wants to know how does the municipal election year impact school trustees' choice to pilot or not pilot the Alberta curriculum? Now, Dave, is this actually a choice of the trustees, or is it a choice well, of the what, boards? Well, the the 
boards. So the boards, from what I understand, so the boards have um, like the the trustees who make up the the school boards. Uh, yeah. I think there's like twenty or thirty school boards who have um, voted or signaled their intent to the provincial government that they will not be piloting the new Alberta curriculum that was released a few weeks ago and or like a month ago almost now. And we talked about this their curriculum more in the last podcast, so I won't our last episode, so I won't go through it too much. But I mean, I think it does depend. I mean, we'll see whether you know if the provincial government is still sticking to this draft curriculum um by the time october rolls around i think this could be definitely could be uh, an issue that trustee candidates um actually campaign on and that 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 might be that could be top of mind for voters in the fall which which i don't think is a good thing for the provincial government because yeah. i mean there almost seems to be universal opposition and and criticism of this uh, of this draft curriculum it would it so would yeah i mean I would, I would expect trustees would talk about it it would wind up being a referendum on the provincial government. It, it could, you know, depending on how that goes and what the outcome is, it could actually be a pretty good data for the provincial government to understand what they need to do in the next provincial campaign to to hold on to power. Yeah, I mean, that's the potential, the, the municipal, you know, some some elements of the municipal election could definitely be a uh, kind of a, a mini referendum on the, on the provincial government because the provincial government is injecting themselves in like so many parts of, they're making it about, provincial politics essentially so it's you know it could it could go it could go either way but i definitely expect that if we're still talking about curriculum by uh, by october i think trustee candidates will campaign on it which is which will be very interesting because i don't think that i mean trustee candidates don't usually campaign on curriculum issues you know it's usually you know keeping the school open keeping the mm -hmm. schools open you know building the playgrounds uh you know etc cetera, etc cetera. it's gonna be an interesting municipal election that's for sure yeah yeah uh, this next one is from NDP Shaniac. <laughs> Shaniac wants to know what are your odds for the possibility of a summer election? What do you think the prime minister is going to do, Dave? Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I, I don't know. My gut says my, my gut says probably no. I mean, they're nominating candidates. The, all the all the federal parties are nominating candidates. Um, I mean, I guess it depends where we are in this in this third wave and where the mood of Canadians where where the mood of Canadians are um, is in uh, in over the summer and in the fall. I mean, we might not there might not be an appetite for a for a summer election. I don't get the impression that there's really an appetite for a federal election at all. Yeah. Um, among Canadians, like you know, let's get this pandemic dealt with, and then you know maybe in 2022 or 2023 but i don't get the impression that that outside of maybe you know a couple um you know a couple circles in the ottawa bubble that there's really a uh, really a, uh, an appetite among canadians to go to the polls even with the release of the budget last week the federal budget um you know i think it was jagmeet singh who said uh that that the ndp would support the budget cuz canadians don't want an election right now that might have yeah. more to do with the fundraising of his own party and that's fine yeah yeah but like i think unless unless trudeau decides to to call an election i don't see the liberals losing on a vote of non-confidence yeah i mean none of, none of the other parties really seem to be in a in a position to to really at this you know to to want an election i mean the conservatives are stagnating in the polls nationally aaron o'toole he's new but he doesn't really have strong you know his approval ratings aren't very aren't fantastic i was listening to the west of center podcast the other day and uh on, on cbc and uh, janet brown uh, well-known pollster from calgary was talking about um uh the leadership approval ratings for leaders here in alberta and how 
you know, even in Alberta, Arano tools, you know, in terms of the, the, there's no, you know, there's, there's little, very little or, or very, very low kind of strong approval ratings for Arano tool in Alberta. And then that, you know, there's a, you know, there was a decent amount of like approval, but nothing that nothing, you know, people weren't, it could, Albertans weren't excited about Arano tool. Um, and I mean, that doesn't, the election isn't going to be decided. The federal election isn't going to be decided in Alberta. I mean, unless it comes down to one or two seats across the country, but um, you know, that's definitely, you know, an, an indication that there's, they have work to do if, if, uh, if they're not, uh, you know, they're not really uh, getting, making their basics. If, if conservatives aren't excited about their leader, then that's kind of a problem just like it is for any party. Yeah. And I, I would expect that uh, the performance of uh conservative leaders in the provinces is going to have a halo effect on how Canadians feel generally about conservative parties, especially at the federal level, right? Like, I don't think there's a yeah. lot of enthusiasm, certainly uh, among, let's call them undecided voters for conservative governments, given Jason Kenney's performance in the pandemic here in Alberta. Yeah, at least at least now. I mean, mm -hmm. at this point, I mean, you know, Kenny's Jason Kenny's approval ratings are in the tank. The UCP has been behind in every poll since since um, every province wide poll since November. Um, you know, but but I mean, things things do change, and I mean, it's important to remember that the vote the the voting voting patterns in provincial elections and voting patterns in federal elections are, are they can be different. People in Alberta vote differently in federal elections than they do in provincial elections in a, in a large part. The UCP gets, in, even in the last election where they won a majority, a big majority, they only had about 52% of the vote, whereas the the federal conservative party in an election that was held in the same year in 2019, in, Octo in the Oto October of 2019, they got about almost 70% of the vote in Alberta. So, you know, people do vote differently and they vote for different reasons. There, obviously there is a huge, uh, you know, a very strong conservative base in this province, especially in in the rural areas that kind of transcends provincial and federal. Um, but there, you know, there is a big population. I'd say, especially in the cities, where people will, you know, will vote NDP provincially, but then vote conservative federally. It's this this, this uh, you know this blue orange voter, and there's there's a lot of political science uh, research into that in terms of why why people would do that or why why people vote, vote that way. And I think it's across the prairies you've seen in in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. There's kind of a at least in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, there's a long history of of that kind of green blue voter or pardon me, pardon me orange blue voter. Uh, and in Alberta, that seems to be kind of a newer, more of a newer uh, uh, phenomenon because the NDP, um, uh, you know, we're a very a small opposition party before 2015. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's a great question. Uh, NDP Shaniac, thank you for asking it. Uh, this next one is from Nick Moskaluk. Nick asks, do we see cabinet ministers lose seats in the next election? Now, I, I assume Nick's talking provincial. Yeah, I, I yeah, I would say, I'd assume he's talking provincial. I mean, if the, if an election were held today, or tomorrow, yes, probably. Um, I mean, I could see there there are a number of cabinet ministers who won in kind of margin, what I would call marginal seats and competitive seats. So, for example, I mean, looking looking to the next election, um, if it is a competitive election, um, I mean, I'm not going to say who's going to win and who's going to lose their seat because elections, campaigns matter, and elections are funny things. Uh, but our uh, funny things can happen in elections. Unpredictable things can happen in elections. But if an election were held you know, and, and looking at the 2019 results, I mean, you know, in, in Edmonton, obviously Casey Madu, who's the, the minister of justice and attorney general or solicitor general, mm -hmm. 
I can't remember which which one he is, but but Minister of Justice. He's the MLA for Edmonton Southwest, and and was the only UCP MLA elected in Edmonton city limits in 2019. Um, he didn't win by a huge margin. Um, he, his race wasn't the closest in the province, but it, but it wasn't a huge margin. Um, so he, he is with his seat would be one I, that I would be looking at. And I think that the, the, it would be a seat that the NDP are targeting as well, as well as in Calgary, there's a number of seats that were competitive that I would consider competitive, um, where cabinet ministers have been appointed. Um, I'm thinking Calgary varsity where Jason Copping is the, uh, is the UCP MLA. He's the minister of labor and immigration. Um, I think he defeated the NDP candidate, uh, Anne McGrath by around 800 votes. So that, that would be another one I, w- I would look at. And then, um, yeah. And then there's, there's a couple of, a couple other seats in Calgary. And I mean, you know, looking at the polls and I mean, whether this is sustained or not, um, you know, if the NDP are able to hold their lead in Calgary, I mean, there's going to be quite a few competitive seats where cabinet ministers are, are, uh, are, are representing because there are, I mean, uh, Calgary is very heavy with cabinet ministers right now. Yeah. Yeah. So especially the Northeast, n- Northeast Calgary, there were a number of conservative or a number of very competitive seats in the last election that I, that, that, uh, that I'd be watching out for. So, yeah, I mean, it's obviously too early to say like, you know, this person is going to lose and this, per- this person is going to win, but, but uh, I mean, there's advantages of, and there's different pitches that cabinet ministers can make. Right. I mean, the, you know, actually having a, uh, I mean, I expect when, when, uh, when, if Casey Madu runs for re-election in 2023, I expect one of his, you know, his big pitch to, to his constituents would, would be, or is going to be, you know, you have a seat at the cabinet table, if he's still a cabinet minister, yeah. um, you know, Edmonton, he's the Edmonton seat at the cabinet table, he's Edmonton's voice at the cabinet table. And, and, you know, and that's important. And I mean, I think most people don't really think in terms of left, right. And in terms of, you know, the, the partisan politics, um, that's a kind of a compelling argument, I would think. But uh, you know, we'll see. I guess it depends if the government is popular. <laughs> it depends if the government is popular or not. So yeah, we'll yeah. see. It's it's an interesting question. It's like we really get into the realm of speculation, which is uh, which is which is you know a lot of fun. And and Alberta politics is like the weather. If you don't like it, wait five minutes. Uh, yeah, at least it has been over the last five years, right? Well, yeah, and I mean, there's the you know, like right now, like we seem to be in this like you know, we're in this two party competitive system where you know, the, the NDP and the UCP are the two dominant parties, but I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next two years? I mean, we have the, you know, the, I mean, the Alberta, you know, we talk about the Alberta party, you know, they're, they're going to be holding a leadership race. Uh, you know, they got about almost 10% of the vote in the last election, which, you yeah. know, wasn't enough to win, to win any seats, but you know, because of the, the first past the post system, but you know, 10% of the vote isn't anything to, to, uh, to down, should, shouldn't be downplayed. And then there's other, you know, other parties like the Wild Rose Independence Party and these kind of, separatist right-wing separatist parties that are popping up where you know it'd be interesting to see if they're if if they're able to do well and in, in especially in rural areas where there's you know there seems to be a lot of um dissatisfaction among among conservative voters mm-hmm. yeah there, a lot can change in two years that's for sure a good question though thanks for that yeah Nick. yeah great question uh this next one is from rd travis uh rd asks the ndp seem to be winning on all fronts polls fundraising is it because of any calm strategy on their part, pure anger at the UCP or something else. And do you think that they can sustain this momentum for up to two years? KLB asks the same question. What do you think they need to do to hold on to this momentum? So let's start with, do you think that the NDP is winning in polls or winning on all fronts because of their calm strategy, Dave? Well, I think it's like, I mean, going back to the, 2015 election um the ndp won the 2015 election 
I, I mean, there, there were a lot of factors, but I think that, I mean, the kind of the, I, I boil it down to the two biggest factors. Number one, Rachel Notley ran a fantastic, Rachel Notley had a fantastic performance. The NDP ran a great campaign and mm-hmm. she was very clearly from the beginning of the campaign, premier material. She was the strongest leader. Um, you know, she, they really tapped into the dissatisfaction with the, with the PCs. But the second half of that is that the PCs met them halfway is the PCs ran an abysmal campaign in 2015. It was, it was just like uninspired, um, confusing. Uh, it was, you know, they were this lumbering, lumbering institution that had been in power for too long that had, you know, that was incoherently trying to reinvent itself in 2015 and it didn't work and Albertans didn't buy it. Um, and I mean, obviously the other part was that there was another, there was a third political party, which, which, which I mean, vote splitting. There's a lot of, there was, a, I'm like delving into a totally different question. There's a lot of, there's a lot of talk in 2015 about, or the results of the 2015 election about the NDP won because of vote splitting on the right. I don't buy that. Um, I don't think that Albertans were voting left or right, uh, had left or right in their mind when they were voting in the 2015 election. I truly believe that the 2015 election was a vote split between between the NDP and the Wild Rose on the anti-PC vote because the election was not about left versus right. It was about kicking out the PCs. And even if you go look at the polling from a number of poll, number of polling, a number of polling reports that were released from from 2015, you could see that the the largest number of second choice votes of UCP vote or, or pardon me of Wild Rose voters were, were NDP was the NDP. So wild voters, wild rose voters were putting the NDP would have put the NDP as their second choice because it wasn't voting left or right. It was about kicking out the PCs. So the vote split in 2015 was about the vote split was between the NDP and the wild rose in a weird, in a weird way, because that's what that election was about. It wasn't about left or right. It was about kicking out, kicking the bums out. Um, so going back to the, so going back to the, the next there, what's going, what's going on now and going to the next election. I mean, I think the NDP are, are doing well in terms of their communications. I think Rachel Notley is, She's hitting a lot of key points that are resonating with a lot of Albertans. I think that, you know, because we now have this competitive political system where a lot of Albertans realize that, you know what, we can change political parties. This isn't, uh, you know, we're no, we no longer exist in this political um, environment where the conservatives will always win no matter what, just because they're conservatives as we do have a competitive political system. Albertans now know what it's like to change governments twice. Um, so I think that the NDP are doing well. I think Rachel Notley is there's continues to be their strongest asset. I think that when you see how much time they're spending in Calgary, I mean, Rachel Notley is basically a Calgarian at this point. Um, but you know, every single press conference, every single social media post, everything is everything, you know, has the downtown Calgary backdrop in it. They're really focusing in on Calgary because there's a lot of disenchantment in Calgary about the UCP and the NDP know that they need to win and win seats in Calgary if they want to win the next election. That's their path, their path to government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so part of it is I think the NDP are doing well. Um, but the other big part of it is that the UCP are just not doing well at all. Is is they're they're striking out on almost every, I mean, almost every issue. I wrote a post the other day um, about basically kind of reviewing uh, Jason Kenney's the the end of his two year first two years in 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 government because we just passed the two year and second year anniversary of the 2019 election um, and nothing seems to be working out for Kenny. I think they, you know, they they the UCP planned to implement of um, a controversial agenda. Uh-huh. Um, so I think they planned to be at this point. They didn't. They 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 calculated that they would be unpopular at this point because they have this big 
policy document with, with a lot of controversial elements that they were planning on on you know re remaking Alberta in this in this kind of libertarian right wing conservative vision. Um, but they didn't expect to be in the middle of a global pandemic at the same time. And yeah. I think that I think they would have been unpopular and anyway, maybe not as unpopular, but that they continued this agenda, this very controversial agenda um, and political program in the middle of a pandemic um, has really, um, really screwed them over. <clears throat> yeah, they, you know, they, they, barely, they barely hit the brakes on the, on their program. And also, I think that, you know, after the 2015 election, there was a lot of talk about what Albertans vo actually voted for in the 2015 election and how the NDP may have misinterpreted that and in terms of some of the policies that they implemented. And I think the same can be said with for the UCP in 2019. In 2015, Albertans wanted to get rid of the PCs and that was kind of the main driver. Um, and in 2019, Albertans, you know, a lot of Albertans, I mean, the NDP still got, uh, you know, um, the th they got the third most votes of any political party in Alberta history in forming opposition in 2019. Um, but, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the motivation of a lot of Alberta voters was they wanted to, wanted, they wanted to kick the NDP out. They wanted a new government, but they didn't necessarily, so they, so they voted out, they wanted to vote out the NDP, but they didn't necessarily want to buy into the, you know, this, this massive kind of ideological document that the UCP put out. Um, you know, with input from the Fraser Institute and the Taxpayers Federation, all this kind of like right wing, uh, right wing web of of uh, of, of think tanks. So I, th I think that's that's part of it. Is Albertans wanted to get wanted they wanted change, but they didn't necessarily want this. Yeah. So I think that's you know so so in some ways you know the NDP are doing well, but the UCP is really meeting them halfway. If they can sustain this for two years, I don't know. I mean, things change if the pandemic is over two years from now, which God, I hope it is. Um, I mean, you know, Albertans' priorities might uh, might change. Um, you know, will Jason Kenney still be Premier of Alberta when the next election is called? That's another thing that could that that, that could really really change things up. I mean, I think part of the part of the problem for the United Conservative Party is Jason Kenney. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, is his he's unpopular? He's unsympathetic. He's confusing. He's seems to be putting politics ahead of everything. Um, if if you remove Jason Kenney from that, do you? I mean, it does the does the United Conservative Party stay united, or does a new leader can a new leader change things for them? And maybe maybe that maybe they maybe that's uh, that is the path. So I don't know. We'll see if they can sustain momentum for two years. I don't know. We'll see. But yeah. I mean, Alberta politics is great. It's so. Uh, I mean, it seems to be so unpredictable at this point. I mean, who would have thought two years ago that the NDP would be leading the UCP at this point? Like, really? Oh, I know. I know. I you know it's a, it's an interesting question because I do think. I think the NDP's communication strategy has absolutely capitalized on the anger at the UCP. You just mm -hmm. look at even like, you know, um, they've been fundraising against UCP cabinet ministers' birthdays. Yeah. You know, it's it's an interesting little tactic. Um, can they sustain the momentum for up to, to two more years? Absolutely, they can. The question is, will it be effective? Like, I think what you're seeing is an NDP machine that's enthusiastic about yep. its opposition and and truly wants to get into government um, because they believe they can they can help Albertans and I don't think that will wane in two years but you're you're absolutely right it depends on what the other team does over the next two years for sure yeah that was a good question yep. Travis thanks for Great that question maybe, maybe it's something they could talk about on on Zane Velge's new podcast that's a you know what I'll text them and, and suggest it because I yeah I, I don't think they should be spending their time talking about pyromania and dairy queens i just don't think yeah. it's a 
I think that's smart. Okay, our next question is from Jason Carbs Brooks. And Jason asks, NDP donation, a sign of a growing base or same base but more motivated? And we sort of talked about this at the beginning of the show, Dave, but what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the I mean, every one of those individuals, I think they had this, if I remember correctly, they had 13, over 13,000 donations, the NDP, or that were made to the NDP in the first three months of 2021. I mean, each one of those donors um, is potentially a volunteer um, going into the next election. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, if, if you are, I mean, this is one of those things where the Wild Rose Party and the NDP, the NDP to a smaller extent, because they would, you know, before they formed government in 2015, they would, you know, they wouldn't raise as much money as the as the big conservative two big conservative parties, but the Wild Rose Party had a real strong individual donor base um, after going before and after the 2012 election. They didn't necessarily rely on the kind of the massive donations, corporate donations that the Progressive Conservative Party basically became almost totally reliant on. Um, they really focused on growing an individual donor base, and I think I think you saw that there were elements of the. Um, or, or elements borrowed, tactics borrowed from the federal conservative party, which really excelled and continues to excel in in collecting individual donations on, on a federal level. And, and a lot of the same people were involved with the Wild Rose Party as were involved with the federal conservatives. Um, and the NDP has really, really, um, really excelled at that, at that as well. And it seems more so than the UCP, which, I mean, has seemed to have, have lost that uh, lost that element from, from the Wild Rose Party that they, they excelled on so well. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a you know there's a there's a base of supporters that donate small amounts of money that could potentially be volunteers or be candidates. Um, they're motivated. Uh, they're motivated for in, for the NDP, but they're also motivated against the UCP, which is a big uh, which is I think the biggest motivator here. Yeah, for sure. Great question, Jason. Thank you for asking. We've got our last question here from Ty Guy eighty, and Ty Guy asks. To secure Notley's return to power in 2023, should I be hoping that Jason Kenney hangs on? And and I presume it's hangs on as leaders of the UCP. What do you think, Dave? Oh, this is a this is an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just talked about how one of the one of the ways that the the UCP could you know potentially could turn turn things around would be uh, would be um, uh, choosing a new leader, but. That presumes that a new leader will be able to appease the the factions that are that Kenny also seems to be unable to to appease. Um, I mean, I wouldn't underestimate Kenny in terms of as a as a political campaigner, and I think this almost goes to. I mean, I've, I've heard a number number of people kind of comment on this, but I think it it you know there's a there's a strong argument to me to be made that Kenny is a is a good political campaigner but not necessarily a good governor in terms of not necessarily um, a good premier in terms of being implementing a, or, or leading a, leading a government. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess the question is, you know, two years from now is a long two years from now is, I mean, it's not a long time, but it, but it is, but it is a long time. Um, I mean, one of the ways that parties who are down in the polls um, reinvent themselves is by changing political parties, is by changing their leaders. And we've seen this in Alberta politics uh, numerous times when um, when Peter Lougheed was growing a little long in the tooth, there were tire kickers who wanted him to re to retire, and he eventually did. A little, I think he was le less less pushed out and more, um, you know, more actually being able to retire on his on his own on his own um, own timeline. But but the tire kickers were there when the PCs were down in the polls. 
uh, in the late eighties and, and the early nineties when Don Getty was premier Getty famously, I think at a conference PC party conference in Banff promised that he would try to turn things around. Um, when he couldn't, he, uh, he was basically for, he, you know, resigned before basically being pushed out before he would have basically been pushed out and the, the party elected, um, chose Ralph Klein as leader who was able to reinvent the party and, and win the 1993 election when Klein had had stuck around for too long. Um, the, you know, his political party, his, his party, the progressive conservatives basically kicked him out when they gave him 55% um, in the leadership review following the 2004 election. Um, then the party was down in the polls and they reinvented themselves under a guy by the name of Ed Stelmack, who went and won a big majority in, in the 2008 election. Uh, and then Stelmack didn't even last one term before he was basically pushed out, um, you know, or resigned before a caucus revolt. Um, and replaced by Alison Redford, who was the who was the, who was the who then resigned uh, during a caucus revolt while she was being you know basically at the point of being pushed out of the party. So you can say I think you can see a trend here is is the I mean one of the one of the things about the Progressive Conservative Party, which governed Alberta for forty three years, is it had a really good self um, like a survival instinct uh, that I don't necessarily see in the United Conservative Party. Is the the PCs really could I mean they had a real real um, a real, uh, say like a wet, the wet, they were like, a, it was like a weather vane, right? They could figure out, they had a real, real sense of where Albertans were and where Albertans were going. Um, but then they also had the real ability to backtrack and a real ability to adjust. And sometimes that meant on adjusting on issues, policy issues where they were, they taken an unpopular position or implemented unpopular policy. And sometimes that meant actually just changing their leader and reinventing their wheel, reinventing their, their, uh, you know, the image of their party. So, you know, I, will the UCP do that? I mean, you know, Jason Kenney has some time, but he doesn't have a lot of time to turn this stuff around. And we know that there are now uh, constituency associations in the UCP who are circulating uh, a letter calling on Kenny to resign. We've had this this group of 15, 18 MLAs who are publicly um, uh, contradicting and challenging the government on public health restrictions on, you know, the most important issue, essentially the most important issue of of, uh, of this term in government. And he just doesn't seem to have any control over his caucus or any control over, over his party. And, uh, you know, so, you know, whether he, whether he lasts to, to 2023 or not might not be his choice. If the party decides that he's a liability, um, you know, it might be, uh, it, it might be time to, uh, to, for them to, uh, to revamp under a new leader. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe the, maybe the NDP, maybe, maybe Rachel Notley should be, should be hoping Jason Kenney hangs on to 2023. Cause, uh, you know, it, unless he can really, really turn, turn things around, it's, it's not going to be good for the UCP. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's, uh, it'll be no matter what interesting over the next months and years as we look forward to 2023. Thanks for that question, Ty Guy. And thank you to everyone who sent in a question. It was a lot of fun to answer these ones, Dave. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was awesome. Thanks again. Uh, yeah. Thanks again, everybody for, for the questions. We love these, uh, these, uh, question and answer episodes and, uh, yeah, well, that's, that, that, that's it for this episode. Uh, thanks for listening. And thanks again to Adam Rosenhardt, our producer for making the podcast sound so great. Remember to get your limited edition copy of midlife at midlifebook.ca. You won't regret it. It's an excellent read. Uh, the Dayberta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. 
send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at, at Dave Berta or on the Berta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at daveberta.ca. And if you feel like leaving a review or a rating where you listen to the podcast, we, we love that as well. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>